Well, let us uh, continue in worship this morning by opening our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 22 and 23. Acts chapter 2, 22 and 23. Listen to the reading of God's word this morning. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of of lawless men. There's always a sense of uh, insufficiency, especially when you're dealing with verses like these, uh, extremely deep. And I always feel like I'm in an ocean trying to keep my head above water. And this is certainly one of those cases. But this morning we continue our journey through Peter's first sermon during what we know as Pentecost. And just as a reminder for context, What Peter is saying in this section, beginning in verse 14, all the way through verse 36, is in response to what? A question. A question that was asked back in verse 12. What does this mean? Therefore, we cannot forget the context that dominates Peter's words. Everything he's saying in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, is connected to the meaning of Pentecost, the meaning of Pentecost. He's not just giving a random sermon. Rather, Peter Peter is explaining the meaning of the mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire, and the disciples' ability to speak in foreign languages. That is the context. As the people looked and heard these things taking place, they obviously didn't understand what it all meant. And so Peter's sermon then is, is Peter giving a detailed explanation of the supernatural events of Pentecost. Now, in the first part of the answer, which we saw last Sunday in verses 14 through 21, Peter says that the events of Pentecost are a demonstration of God's faithfulness to his promises. We saw that uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and of course, Joel all prophesied in the Old Testament about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And according to Peter, all these prophecies were being fulfilled as he spoke during that day of Pentecost. On that very day, God was bringing to pass the words he had spoken through his Old Testament prophets. God is faithful. This morning, we are moving into our second section of Peter's answer, which is found in verses 22 And 23. Now, let me clarify something. I speak of sections in this sermon only for the sake of explanation and ease of understanding. But let us be clear that the sermon has one major point. What is that point? The main point is presented to us in summary form in our memory verse for the month of November. What is that? Acts 2, 36, 
you got it. You got it. Very good. Acts 2.36. You know, just need a little bit of help. That is our memory verse. And that is the summary statement of the main point of this sermon given by Peter. The ultimate objective of his sermon is to convince the crowds what of what? That Jesus Christ is both Lord and Christ. Now, I saw the need to divide the sermon into more digestible units for uh, understanding, but the main point is always Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Christ. Now, we will unpack that when we get to verse 29 through 30, 36 in a few weeks. Now, we're only dealing with two verses this morning, 22 and 23, but you must know this. These two verses reveal nothing less than the very meaning of history. That's right. Acts 2, 22 and 23 reveal the very meaning of history. In fact, we could sum up all of human history this way. B.C. history, meaning history before Christ, was all about preparations for Christ's first coming. A.D. history. What is that? What is A.D.? Anu Domini, right? The year of our Lord, our, our era, AD history, meaning history after the first coming of Christ is the outflow of the first coming and is preparing the way for Christ's second coming. So whether you're thinking about BC history or AD history, all of history revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. We can even put it like this. The world itself, the world itself with all its history is the stage on which God displays his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Meaning the world itself was created so that Jesus might be seen as glorious. This being the case, and please don't take this the wrong way. The universe is not about you. Yeah. The universe is not about you. Believe it or not, this is the message the world needs to hear today more than ever. The world is not about you. The world is not about me. The universe is not about us. We are not the center of the universe. Yes, we do hold a special place in creation. We are made, after all, in the image of God. We were given dominion over the things of this world, and we were given a glory that only belongs to humanity. But make no mistake. The center of history is not you and is not me. The center of history rather is the Lord Jesus Christ. The world was created simply so that Jesus would have a stage upon which to shine his never ending glory. And you either accept that or you deny that. But Christ is the center of history. Listen, even our salvation is to promote the glory of the son of God. Paul said in Ephesians one, no less than three times that we were saved to the praise of the glory of God. In light of this, let me make the following comment. I can say that much of the decay we are seeing in our society is due to the fact that men are seeking to be Kings of their own little worlds. That's it. My friends, Men are seeking to be kings of their own little worlds. At the end of the day, 
transgenderism, homosexuality, sexual immorality, abortion, identity confusion, adultery, lying, and anything else are all many expressions of a misplaced allegiance. These vices are all manifestations of man's quest for autonomy, which means self-government. How do I know this? You may ask, how dare I make such misstatements? Here's how I know. Here's how I know. All moral decay, all human rebellion, and all evil, all evil will be brought to an abrupt and sudden end when, in God's perfect timing, every knee bows and every tongue confesses what? That Jesus is Lord. On that day, all evil will be done away with. Therefore, the divine solution to all human woes is the acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ. And all of history, my friend, your history included, is moving toward that glorious end. Moreover, the very meaning of your life is tethered to your relationship to Christ. It is not tethered to your career, how much money you make, how popular you are among your friends, how accepted you are in society. The meaning of your life has only one direction. You're either with Christ or against Christ. And that's where the story ends. Now, let's consider our verses again. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the def definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let me give you what I believe to be the point of these verses according to the context. And if you're following the notes, you can fill in the blanks. Here's what I believe these verses are saying in context. The coming of the Spirit, Pentecost, means that the death of the Lord Jesus fulfilled the sovereign and eternal plan of the father, which no man can thwart. I'm going to repeat that. The coming of the spirit, meaning Pentecost, means that the death of the Lord Jesus fulfilled the sovereign and eternal plan of the father, which no man can thwart. Our redemption from sin, death, and hell is the sovereign work of our triune God, meaning God is moving history with perfect control toward its intended end. History itself is the sovereign work of God to accomplish his desired purposes. Now, let us see how Peter makes his case. First point is this. God's sovereignty was historically demonstrated by the incarnation of Christ. God's sovereignty was historically demonstrated by the incarnation of Christ. We are entering Christmas season, so I believe this to be very appropriate. During the time of Jesus, let me give you some history here. During the time of Jesus, there were three primary philosophies at play. These were Platonism, Epicureanism, and Stoicism. Platonism derived its name from its founder. Namely, Plato. Very good, Plato. Now, according to some experts, Plato is probably the greatest philosopher to ever live. If that's not the case, he's at least probably the most influential. Platonism taught that the world, 
The, the characteristic of this world is that it is always changing. It is always changing. In other words, the world is always becoming. The world is always becoming. The eternal world, on the other hand, the world where God lives is characterized by being, not by becoming. In Plato's understanding, the world of the eternal is what it is because there is no change which is entailed in the word being. The world above, the world where God lives, never becomes anything it simply is. Now, based on this understanding, Plato taught that the true destiny of man, his true calling, listen to this, according to Plato, is to rise above that which is temporal and changing. That was his message. Now, how do you do that? You do it by contemplating things that do not change by giving your mind over entirely to the contemplation of eternal realities. Sounds easy to do, right? Through the mental exercise of contemplation, man can rise above the world and eventually become God. Now, let me ask you this. What was wrong with Plato's view of man's destiny, purpose, and calling? Well, he kept emphasizing that man must rise above man needs to lift himself up into eternal realities through contemplation. Unfortunately, Plato died in the year 347 BC, meaning before Christ Plato lived over three centuries prior to the fullness of time when God sent forth his son. Therefore, consider this Plato with all his great intellect, his great ideas died, not having understood that man's purpose is not to rise above this temporal world through contemplation, but to believe that the God above has descended here below and that his name is Jesus of Nazareth. While Plato was calling people to rise above, here's Peter telling us that God himself has come down below. How? God came down below to meet us through the incarnation of the Son of God. Now, according to historian Nick Needham, it was the influence of Platonism that confused some early theologians with respect to the incarnation. For, for Plato, the soul or that which is invisible was superior to the body or that which is visible. According to Plato, the spiritual is always better than the material than matter. Consequently, some of the early church fathers struggled to understand how God who is pure and perfect spirit could take on a physical human body. Now this philosophy led to what is known as Gnosticism. Now Gnosticism as a formal movement did not start until the middle of the second century AD, meaning after the events of Acts chapter two, but Gnostic thinking was already at play, especially in a Hellenized world. You know what Hellenism is, right? The influence of Greek thought. It was so pervasive. It was all over the world. Some Gnostics taught the following since the immaterial is superior to that, which is material. And since God is an immaterial spirit, the body of Christ, the body of Christ only appeared to be 
human, but it really wasn't. Even his body was heavenly, not really human. Now, the specific name of this teaching, this heretical teaching, was docetism from the Greek word dokane, which means to seem. Jesus only seemed to be human, but he really wasn't. Why? Because matter is not good. So God cannot really acquire a human body because matter is bad. But thankfully, the apostle Peter was not a docetist. Listen to his words in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, a man. What a statement. What an astonishing, mind-bending statement. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Peter did not say Jesus of Nazareth who appeared or seemed to be a man. Not at all. Peter simply said Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus wasn't truly a man, then man cannot be truly saved. Jesus was and is. Jesus was and is an actual man with body and bones like ours right now. He is a man in heaven like you and I. In fact, let me put it this way. The very essence of our hope of eternal life lies in the actual humanity of Jesus. If he was not a human in the true sense of the word, we are hopeless. There is no hope. But Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Do you know what it took for that statement to be possible? It took the sovereignty of God over three realms, at least three realms, human history, the process of human conception and physical matter. Let's go through each one of those. Consider the sovereignty of God over history. If you want to see a glorious picture of God's sovereignty over the history leading up to the birth of Christ, I would recommend you consider reading Luke's account of Christ's birth in chapter three of his gospel, Luke chapter three. The same man who wrote the book of Acts traces the lineage of Jesus all the way back to who? Adam. Adam, the first man in human history. What does that mean? In order for God to make a promise that requires thousands of years of historical development, it can only mean that God was in control of every single generation leading up to the birth of Christ. All of which makes it abundantly clear, clear that when God promised Eve that her seed would crush the serpent's head, God didn't mean hopefully. He meant it will take place. And so Peter can say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Second, consider with me, the incarnation of Christ took God's sovereignty over the process of human conception. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, what did he tell her? Here's what he told her. According to Matthew's account in Matthew 1:18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Afterward, you don't remember how Joseph got a little worried about that? 
When the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph to explain to him Mary's unexpected pregnancy, he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus of Nazareth was a man whose very conception was supernaturally brought about by the Holy Spirit. Once again, we see the Trinity at work even from the very beginning of his incarnation. Even his human conception was a Trinitarian work, was the work of the Trinity. And finally, the incarnation of Christ took God's sovereignty over physical matter, physical matter. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, right after a service here, if I believe Jesus always had a body. And I said, well, the answer is no. No. The incarnation of Christ, by definition, means the eternal son of God took upon himself something that was not of his essence. Consider the writer of Hebrews. When he says in Hebrews 10 verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, consider that, not before that, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. That's what Christ said when he entered into the world. A body have you prepared for me. The body of the Lord Jesus, his human body, was made by God in the womb of Mary at the moment of his conception. God sovereignly created the tissue and the blood vessels and the brain and the lungs and the heart and the bones and everything that belongs to the human body. Why? It was all done in order. Listen to this. You can't miss this. You can fall asleep after this. Don't, don't fall asleep yet. It was all done. Why? In order that the eternally begotten son of God, the eternally begotten son of God could become like one of us so that he could live perfectly as a man, as a man, so that he could die vicariously as a man, so that he could be raised powerfully as a what? as a man, and so that he could ascend victoriously also as a what? A man. Jesus had to become a man because he did what we could not. So Peter can say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Clearly, brothers and sisters, we have reason to give thanks in particular we have a reason to give thanks to the Lord for his sovereign work of redemption in the person of Christ. For in it, we see the perfect unity of our triune God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sovereignly bring to pass the eternal plan in the womb of Mary. God is sovereign over history, human conception, and matter. Truly, there is a God in heaven worthy of all our worship and adoration. Now, let us consider Peter's next point. God's sovereignty was, and I don't know what the word is in your notes. Unmistakably. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yes, unmistakably. I don't know if I changed it or not, so I, I forgot about that. Unmistakably confirmed through the miracles of Christ. <laughs> 
through the miracles of Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. How? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. As if the incarnation of the eternally begotten son of God was not enough. Peter now moves to prove the sovereignty of God by appealing to the well-attested miracles of Jesus, which were performed when? During his earthly ministry as a man, as a man. Miracles, what are miracles? Well, miracles are a divine and unexpected intervention in the common affairs of man. Miracles are events that can only be explained by appealing to the supernatural. Now, the miracles of Jesus were the visible evidence that the kingdom of God had entered into the human realm through and in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. The miracles were the seal of legitimacy and authenticity of all of Christ's claims. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Notice how it was God doing the miracles through Jesus, the man. It is as though Peter were saying, God put his mark, his seal, his stamp of approval upon this man from Nazareth. What was that seal? Well, the power that came from him. In other words, through the miracles of Jesus, God was confirming, and we're going to go back to the Deuteronomy. God was confirming the words spoken by God through Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, here's what God said through Moses. I will raise up for them, meaning Israel, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The miracles performed by Jesus during his earthly ministry were the confirmation that he was indeed the prophet of which Moses spoke Back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, not only the prophet, but the Messiah sent from God. Now, in this regard, let us spend a few moments thinking about the purpose of miracles for us living over 2000 years after they were performed. What I'm trying to get at is this. We can only read about the miracles of Jesus, right? But we can't experience them ourselves. He's not walking among us anymore. We are not the ones being raised from the dead or being healed from leprosy or being given sight from blindness, etc. What's the point of reading about the miracles if we can't experience the miracles? Why are there four for us? Well, since we can't see them happening with our own eyes, but they are still written for us in scripture then we know that the purpose of these signs and wonders and miracles was to explain something important for generations to come. What is that? Well, I believe the greater purpose of the miracles of Jesus is summed up for us by Paul in second Corinthians five 17. It explains everything. Listen to the, listen to second Corinthians five 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the what has come? The new has come. Why miracles if we can't see them or experience them? The miracles are there as the divine attestation 
that Jesus is indeed the one who makes all things new, but in a much, much greater manner than just a material sense. Jesus can make all things new. So for instance, Jesus gave sight to the blind, but to us, he has given spiritual sight so we might see his salvation. Jesus cleansed the leper's skin, but to us, he has given a new identity and our sins have been washed away. Jesus raised the dead, but to us, he has given life everlasting that will never end miracles then. We're in many ways typological of something greater, way beyond our comprehension. Jesus can not only give bread to 5,000 people. Jesus is himself the bread of life that can feed millions upon millions upon millions of those who believe. In fact, if you believe this morning, he can feed you for all eternity. God's sovereignty is such that he can bend the laws of physics, raise the dead, restore sight, heal diseases, and on and on so that we might believe that Jesus is the one with the power to save. He can make all things new. Many of those listening to Peter's sermon saw these miracles with their own eyes, and yet they remained in unbelief. They killed the Son of God. How is this possible? How can someone see these miracles with their own eyes and remain hostile toward the one doing the miracles? The answer is our next point, our third point. Why is it that people remained in darkness, hating the son of God to the point of killing him? Well, because God is sovereign. But God's sovereignty was supremely displayed in the death of Christ. God's sovereignty was supremely displayed in the death of Christ. Listen to verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. Easy to understand, right? Let me read that again. This Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I'm tempted at this point to say, let's pray and go home. You figure it out on your own. But I'm going to try to help as best I can. Now, let me draw your attention to one word. Contingency. Contingency. What is contingency? Contingency is defined as a set of future circumstances that cannot be predicted, but that could change an outcome. Contingency is bound up to life in this world, isn't it? Hence, our need for contingency plans. Contingency plans. What is a contingency plan? A contingency plan is what goes into effect when the original plan is thwarted. How many times have we been driving from point A to point B, planning on a specific route only to find out that the road we were thinking on taking was closed? Has that ever happened to you? That's always frustrating. 
even with a fully functional GPS. It's always frustrating to have to change your plans. Well, that is contingency. Unplanned, unanticipated events that can alter outcomes and force us into new actions, new schemes, new plans. That's the world in which we live. You wake up in the morning one Sunday and you say, today's going to be a wonderful day. And then your wife says something. Or, or you say something to your wife. I should, I should say it that way. You say something to your wife. And it kind of ruins her day or whatever. That's the world we live in. We make plans and things change. The point of verse 23 is to say this. God has never acted on the basis of contingency. Never. God, what God does is always according to his original plan. God's plans are never subject to alterations. The death of Jesus is the supreme proof of this truth. Here's what we're asking and seeking to answer. This is the all important question. Ultimately, why did Jesus die? Ultimately, why did Jesus die? Was it a series of unfortunate events and God had to make the best out of what other forces threw at him? Was our Lord Jesus the helpless victim of the whims and malicious intentions of evil men? Well, if you only read the last part of verse 23, it would seem like the answer is yes. This Jesus, says Peter, the one from Nazareth, that man, the one attested to you by God with miracles, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Why did Jesus die? Well, the text clearly says Jesus died at the hands of lawless men. Evil men killed the Lord Jesus. Evil men put him on the cross until he drew his last breath. This is true. And Peter is making this abundantly clear. No question about this. Our Lord was killed by lawless men. Evil men killed the Lord Jesus. No question about this. We affirm all of that because it is written. But that doesn't answer the question I originally asked. Remember the question. Ultimately, why did Jesus die? We're asking a question about ultimacy. We're asking a question about the primary reason why Jesus died on a cross. Yes, men were the ones who drove the nails through his body and left him hanging until he breathed his last. Yes, Undoubtedly, men in their evil schemes were doing what their darkened hearts desired to do by having Jesus killed. But that, my friends, is only the instrumental cause of Jesus' death, which is quite shocking. The instrumental cause of Jesus' death was the lawlessness of evil men who hated him. But that was not the ultimate cause. The ultimate cause of Jesus' death was not the schemes of men. Rather, in the words of Peter himself, the ultimate cause of Jesus' death on the cross was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, Jesus died ultimately because God is sovereign. The death of, the death of Jesus was the sovereignty of God at work, which is truly astonishing. 
Consider that little expression. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. First note is the word delivered up, delivered up. Jesus was delivered up. The meaning of that is quite astonishing. It means to be given over to someone, to be given over to someone. Now the lexicon that I consulted explained that in the outline of biblical usage of that expression, it primarily means to give over to enemies. Jesus of Nazareth, this man was given over to God's enemies. He was given over to God's enemies, but that's not the shocking part. The real shocking part is that this Jesus of Nazareth was given over to his enemies by God. By God. This, says Peter, was done according to God's definite plan. The word definite can, only be, can also be translated as determined or ordained. Therefore, the giving over of Jesus to his enemies to be crucified was not a contingency plan. Rather, it was the eternal plan. It had been ordained. Now, in order to strengthen his argument, Peter then adds that it was also according to God's foreknowledge. The Greek word there is prognosis, which means to know prior, to know prior. When these two expressions are taken together, namely, definite plan and foreknowledge of God, the case becomes irrefutable. The case case becomes irrefutable. The lawless and evil men who killed Jesus acted in accordance with the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, meaning in an ultimate sense, Jesus died according to the divine plan. Now, this explains the words of Paul in Romans 1.16 where he speaks of the gospel as what the power of God for salvation. How can the death of Jesus be the power of God? The only way in which the death of Jesus can be the power of God unto salvation is if the death of Jesus is also the plan of God for our salvation. Or as Isaiah 53 verse 10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So who killed Jesus? God did. Through lawless men. The father crushed the incarnate son on that cross using evil men. But this creates a massive question, doesn't it? If lawless men who killed Jesus did what they did because it was God's plan all along, if they were instruments in God's hand to bring about the ultimate plan, how can they be guilty? I don't know why I went there. Because now we have to talk about it. Now, we will dive deeper into that question when we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. So I won't take a lot lot of time this morning. I just want to repeat something that I told my Spanish Sunday school class a few weeks ago. One way to know that you're growing in your faith is when you start being comfortable living in theological tension. And I think this is one of the hallmarks of reformed faith and the reformed theology. Reformed Christians are Christians who are learning to live comfortably in theological tension. And here's one tension within which we must live. 
The sovereignty of God over all things does not remove human responsibility and guilt. How comfortable are you in that? As I said, we will consider the issue in greater depth later on in our study when we get to chapter 4. I believe it's more conducive for that type of study. For now, let me make a statement in light of the entire context of Peter's sermon. And we'll finish with this. I want to connect Pentecost to the death of Christ. And it goes like this. The spirit came because Jesus died according to the divine plan. Is that simple? The spirit came because Jesus died according to the divine plan. Therefore, the death endured by Jesus was the victory of God over the death caused by sin. And the coming of the spirit is the application of that victory in the lives of all those who believe. Ironically, somewhat ironically, from a human perspective then, through his death on the cross, Jesus was killing death itself. Or as John Owen famously said, and I paraphrase, the death of Christ was the death of death. He killed death on the cross. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God put Jesus on the cross because in the crucified Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The wages of your sin is death. My friend, the wages of your sin is death. What your sin deserves is death. In order to save you from receiving your wages, Jesus received those wages upon himself. For God so loved the world that in his definite plan and foreknowledge, his own son took our place and died. The death of Jesus was not plan B or C. The death of Jesus was in the mind of our triune God from all eternity. And the evil men were the instruments through which God brought about his redemptive plan. The world was created for the sake of Christ. And this world will end also for the sake of Christ. And your eternity depends on what you do with Christ. And so the question is, will you believe in him this morning? Will you trust him that his death on the cross was for your sins and that he's the only way to be reconciled with a holy God? So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you will be saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, reminder this morning that we are indeed the product of your sovereignty operating in the world. We thank you for reminding us that everything that takes place in this world is according to your plan. Even the greatest evil ever perpetrated upon anyone, the killing of the son, the killing of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ was according to your definite plan and foreknowledge. Based on this, Lord, let us, let us always consider your power to save that not even death could keep your people from communion with you. Thank you for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, for dying for our sins and for his glorious resurrection. And I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone in this room who is yet to believe in the Lord Jesus, that you will draw them to yourself powerfully 
that their eyes will be open and that Christ will be seen as glorious, magnificent, and sufficient Savior, and that they will trust him for their forgiveness of sins. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.